If you would join me in Bible study this morning, please open up your Bibles to the book of Deuteronomy. We are studying what is traditionally called the Ten Commandments, but I remind you that's not what it's called in the Hebrew of the Bible. It's called the Ten Words. I like to remind myself that because whenever I think of Messiah's words in Matthew 4.4, that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. That word, word, is the same word used back here to describe these commandments. And what have we learned in the ten words so far? Number one, you shall have no other gods before me. How does God react when we worship a God other than he? He says, my name is what? Jealous. My name is Jealous. Closely behind that's number two. You shall not make idols, religious icons of any kind. Why? Makes your heart stray. It takes your worship away from God toward the idols. But aren't there aren't any idols anymore, are there? Not too many. If you watch the opening of the European games, what did they do? They made a huge bull and had a sacrificial ceremony for it. Yes, idolatry is coming more and more back into the mainstream. It used to be, it was there, but it was hidden. People were ashamed to be known that they were associated with. Today, people take it as a point of pride. Number three, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, which means the name of the Lord is to be sacred, is to be holy, is to be precious to us. To take it in vain means to give it no meaning, to make it common. No different than swearing in my name, which would do you no good at all, right? None whatsoever. The fourth is to remember the Sabbath day, to keep it holy, to keep it set apart. It doesn't say to make it holy says to keep it holy. When was the Sabbath day set apart? On the seventh day of creation. Back in Genesis. And what does it mean to remember it? Does that mean to now and then as you're out there enjoying the world? That, oh, by the way, today's the Sabbath. Is that what it means? To retell it week after. Why? Why retell it? Because we find and forget, is it just to remind ourselves or is it to teach our children and generation after generation that it never be forgotten? For when will Shabbat cease to be important? Never. Isaiah 66 says what? And throughout all of heaven and earth, all flesh will come before the Lord our God on the Sabbath. So did it ever end? No. Will it ever end? No. Why is it important to God? It's what? It's the sign. It's the wedding ring. It's what shows that we belong to the Lord our God. The fifth commandment was to honor your father and your mother, which means to be obedient to them. But is that all? And to take care of them in their old age. You know what? The older we get, the more we like that commandment. Oh, sorry about that. The sixth one, thou shalt not murder. Thou shalt not take an innocent life. 
How many preachers have you heard lately say that God approves of abortion? And they're out there doing blessing ceremonies on abortion clinics. Do you think that's going to bring God's wrath down on America and the world? You know it is. To take an innocent life. What was one of the greatest sins God brings as a charge against Israel in Isaiah chapter 1? The blood of the innocents. The seventh, thou shalt not commit adultery. God describes idolatry as if it were adultery. Because God gives us human relationships to teach about things that are beyond our ability to comprehend. And when one commits adultery against their spouse, God says, now think how I feel when you commit adultery with the idols of the world. The pain that it causes, the distress. Number eight was you shall not steal. One aspect we didn't talk about is that thou shalt not steal includes the offense of kidnapping. Nowadays, people run to abortion clinics because they don't want children. In days of old, people wanted as many children as they could get, even if they had to steal them. To steal anything that belongs to your neighbor, is that showing love? Answer is no. And that brings us to the ninth commandment where we are today. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Let's go to Deuteronomy chapter 5 and pick up in verse 20. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. And of course we know from the story of the Good Samaritan that neighbor doesn't just mean the person who lives next door. Now to bear false witness can have several different aspects, some a little more, oh, questionable. But what does God call the two tablets of the Ten Commandments? The tablets of the testimony. Because he said, you are witnesses. If you teach somebody else that the commandments no longer apply, are you bearing false witness? You are. Is that the main idea of this verse? The answer is no. But what happened in a court back in biblical days? If two people came in and testified that you have committed an offense worthy of death, you are put to death. What if there were 10 other people who said, no, it's not true? It doesn't matter. If there's two or more that testify to the offense, you are put to death. Innocent or guilty. So that's why God puts such emphasis on you shall not bear false witness. If you observe a sin or a crime in today's um, lingo, worthy of death or worthy of harsh punishment, could you refuse to testify? The answer is no. You had to testify. God requires you to testify. And you have to testify truthfully. What if you don't want the person to be convicted, but you saw them do the offense? You still have to testify, and you have to testify truly. 
And the two witnesses who testify against the person to be stoned must be the first ones to cast the stones. It's kind of like, are you sure? You don't want to go into a court and say, I saw him commit murder if you did not. Because if you testify falsely against your neighbor, how are you going to stand before God on judgment day? And this was one of the big offenses in Israel. I see a widow who's got a nice piece of land. All I have to do is convince somebody else to go with me to court and say, we saw her commit murder. They'll put her to death and I can take the land. Or bribe the judge, that's right. What does the scripture keep saying about for a pretense taking a widow's home? That's what they're talking about. So let's look at the scriptures here. Wait. Yes, sir? There's a very interesting thing, uh, rabbinic ruling. There's a very interesting rabbinic ruling about? Uh, the two witnesses. The two witnesses. The more severe uh, crime is the second one. The more severe crime is the second one. Yeah, because the first one, it can't be corroborated without a second one. Because the so first the ones can't be corroborated without a second witness. If the second one speaks, he is, uh, he is causing the whole thing to happen. It wouldn't right. happen if it was just one. So but if the, the second... treated as more serious to be the second witness. Right. He's absolutely correct. I hope you heard it. Um, let me put it in my own words. I was going to cover this anyway because it's very important. When Messiah was on trial, how many false witnesses came forward? Lots and lots of false witnesses. Why were there lots and lots of false witnesses yet they couldn't convict him of anything? There wasn't a second. Everybody was willing to come forward and make the first lie because if I'm the only one who testifies to that lie, nothing happens. You can't convict on the testimony of one. So if somebody else comes and tells the same lie, they're the ones God will hold guilty. I'm innocent. How many of you think God will look at it that way? Absolutely not. But that was the thought of the day. And Edmund's right. That's the way the Talmud records it. Is It's the second liar that God will hold responsible. But what does the scripture say? You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Were there false witnesses? Let's go to the book of Acts. Let's go to the book of Acts. Before we talk about Messiah's day, let's talk about the stoning of Stephen. Because the death was carried out. The death sentence was carried out. And the Apostle Paul was a member of the Sanhedrin that was the witness. The one who kept the garments of those who were doing the stoning. Acts chapter 6. Verses 8 through 15. And Stephen, full of faith and power, did great wonders and signs among the people. Isn't that a horrible thing? No, it's a wonderful thing. But it caused jealousy. Verse 9, then there arose from what is called the synagogue of the freedmen, Cyrenians, Alexandrians, and those from Cilicia and Asia disputing with Stephen. Disputing about what? Whether Yeshua is the Messiah. 
Because Stephen is proving through signs and wonders Yeshua is the Messiah and they're taking issue with it. But what? They can't stand against Stephen's testimony. So verse 10, they were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit of which he spoke. Then they secretly induced men to say. What does that word secretly mean? It's bribing. They're looking for false witnesses. They're trying to persuade people to lie. They secretly induced men to say, we've heard him, heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. Oh, by the way, and God. Is this true? Is he teaching people to break God's commandments? No, but that's the allegation. And they stirred up the people, the elders and the scribes, and they, they came upon him, Caesar, and brought him to the council. That council is the Sanhedrin. Do you realize the Sanhedrin was also the court? This is the court that has the ability to mete out a death sentence. They also set up false witnesses. What kind of witnesses? False. Who said, this man does not cease to speak blasphemous words against this holy place. What's this holy place? The temple. Where did the Sanhedrin meet? In the chamber of hewn stone of the temple. In God's own house, they hire people to lie. That man does not cease to speak blasphemous words against this holy place. Oh, and by the way, and the law. For we have heard him say that this Yeshua of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs which Moses delivered to us. Is that a true allegation? No, it's a lie. So why is it still taught today as though it's true? It says, and all who sat in the council looking steadfastly at him saw his face as the face of an angel and they sentenced him to death anyway. Why? Because there were two or more witnesses who made the same lie. How about Messiah? Let's go to one of the trials of Messiah after his arrest. Let's see. He gets arrested in chapter 26. What's that? Matthew 26, which verse? Yeah, I'm sorry. Matthew 26, yeah. Verse 59. Now the chief priests, the elders, and all the council, that's the Sanhedrin, sought false testimony against Yeshua to put him to death. Why did they seek false testimony? Why didn't they bring in true witnesses? Because he hadn't done anything wrong. They couldn't find any charges to bring against him. So they're seeking false witnesses. God bless you, which means they're offering gold and silver. It says, but found none. That's not actually accurate if you take it by itself, but read on. Even though many false witnesses came forward, they found none. Meaning they couldn't find two to agree. But at last, two false witnesses came forward. So finally, they get two false witnesses to agree to a lie. So why then does the Sanhedrin not put Messiah to death by stoning? 
Because in revolt to Rome, because they were mad at Rome at the moment, they refused to meet in the chamber of hewn stone, which was the only place under Jewish law that they could meet out a death sentence. That's why they took him to Pilate. If the Sanhedrin had put him to death, he would have been how? Stoned to death. But what did Psalm 22 tell us he would die by? Crucifixion. How could God possibly know a thousand years before Messiah was born that the Sanhedrin would refuse to meet in the Council of Yun Stone that particular day? Only God can tell us the end from the beginning. Yes, Daniel? You just thought about this? If they'd been as learned in the scripture as they should have been, they would have known, hey, we're not meeting in the chamber of Hewn Stone. Psalm 22 says he's going to die this way. It would really narrow down who the Messiah is going to be. Because how long did they refuse to meet in the chamber of Hewn Stone? Just a very short time because they put Stephen to death by stoning. How much later? Not much later. So there was this brief moment in time where Messiah would die by crucifixion, not by stoning. And God knew that a thousand years before. So it's almost looking for this particular time period to know that Messiah is right there. So why didn't they see it? Remember he told him, you know when it's going to rain? But you don't know the time. Who had told Israel 500 years before Messiah came when he would die? Daniel. Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 to 27. And we have this chamber of hewn stone event. And still the leaders missed it. Some say. I don't think they missed it at all. I think the language in here is clear enough that the high priest and his associates knew Yeshua was the Messiah, but didn't want him to restore rule to Israel. To whom did the high priest owe the office? To Rome. To whom did the wealthy people in Israel owe their wealth and power? To Rome. What did they think Messiah was going to do but break the power of Rome and restore the state? Would the high priest have been the high priest then? No. But the scripture said he wasn't going to bring that at the first coming if they understood that. Right. I agree with you 100%. Oh, I'm on our Ibex trail, aren't I? Let's go back to the scriptures. Exodus 23, verse 1. We know that in Exodus chapter 20, verse 16, it says the same thing because that is the giving of the Torah at Mount Sinai. But in Exodus chapter 23, verse 1, we read the following. Let me give you a chance to get there. Says in verse 1 of Exodus 23, you shall not circulate a false report. That's also bearing false witness. 
And the second sentence says, do not put your hand with the wicked to be an unrighteous wicked. Both those are two facets. Each is a facet of do not be a false witness against your neighbor. What if you're not going to court? You're just telling around the neighborhood, you know, so-and-so down the road, they're a thief. Gossip. Gossip. Might somebody who hears the gossip run to the court and say, hey, we got a thief down there? And your false story then gets carried to the court and somebody gets in grave danger. So we simply should not do that. Deuteronomy 19. Deuteronomy 19, verses 15 to 20. We talked about the necessity of two or more witnesses. Let's read what the Bible says in Deuteronomy 19, verses 15 to 20. Oh, and verse 14 is an aspect I did not mention about stealing. If you move your neighbor's landmark, what have you done to their land? You have stolen a portion of it. What if I just move it a few inches a year? I'm still stealing it. So God says, don't you dare do that. But then in verse 15, one witness shall not rise against a man concerning any iniquity or any sin that he commits. One witness, the accused walks. If one man saw someone commit murder, he has to keep his mouth shut. Nope, if one man saw um, a person commit murder, they must go to court and testify. But if there's not a second who saw it, then the accused walks. Let's not put that on the recording. Okay. By the mouth of two or three witnesses, the matter shall be established. Once it's decided. Even if they were later proven to be false witnesses, that would make a big difference. That's why in the stoning of Stephen, Paul, who's a member of the Sanhedrin, is there at the crucifixion site. There, I'm sorry, at the stoning site. There has to be a witness from the Sanhedrin, and the stoning has to be close enough that the council members can signal the witness to stop the execution should they find out that these were false witnesses and that the person should not have been convicted, they would stop the execution. So if these two guys said Stephen did this... If these two guys said Stephen did this... Immediately, two um, others jumped up and said, no, he didn't, that's a lie. And immediately two others jump up and say, no, he didn't, that's a lie, that's not going to be enough. That's not going to be enough. Because they could be lying. There has to be actual proof to the Sanhedrin that the charges were not true, that the witnesses lied. So for the witnesses, there doesn't have to be proof? I'm sorry? For the witnesses, there doesn't have to be proof? No, it's just their word. Because when you go to the court back then, as today, you must take an oath on the name of God. And we're about to read what happens if you're lying. I don't know of any case in history where they ever stopped the execution because they were persuaded the witnesses had lied. There may have been some, but I don't know of any. 
That was a high standard. So verse 16 says, If a false witness rises against any man to testify against him of wrongdoing, then both men in the controversy shall stand before the Lord, before the priest and the judges who serve in those days. And the judges shall make careful inquiry. And indeed, if the witness is a false witness who has testified falsely against his brother, he shall do to him as he thought to have done to his brother. So you shall put away the evil from among you. That's what should happen. But let me tell you, when the Sanhedrin is hiring the false witnesses, they're not going to be carrying out the procedure God required, are they? Oh, by the way, young man, did anyone hire you to lie? Wasn't me, was it? <laughs> no. That's what should have been done. But it's not what was done. So that makes the whole eye for an eye thing make more sense. How people kind of use it today. You know, they, they, yeah, but people tend today to use eye for an eye in that way. You know, yeah. Kind of like, you know, especially like when they're looking at it from a theological point of view. Like especially when looking at it from a theological point of view. They think people back then just carried stones in the pocket and found people to throw them at. Would not have been hard to do. Looking at the land of Israel, there's plenty of stones. Right. But, you know, but it wasn't that think way. Think about how much better our country would be if our judicial system followed the, the ways of God. Yes, if our judicial system today followed the ways of God, it would be so much different. There's one more verse here. One more verse here. And those who remain shall hear and fear. That is, when they see the false witness put to death, it should discourage them from wanting to be a false witness in the future. It says, and hereafter they shall not commit such evil among you. So that's what was supposed to have happened. Why didn't Israel put that into effect for the trials of Messiah and Stephen? Because they wanted them dead because they weren't following the Torah. Those who were teaching that salvation is by keeping the Torah were not keeping the Torah. Do you see the irony in that? Okay, on to Proverbs chapter 6. Proverbs chapter 6. Oops, I have some red numbers out here. Let's see. Somebody asked, so Judas Iscariot was the second false witness against Yeshua? The answer to that is no. He was simply the one who betrayed Messiah to tell the Sanhedrin when they could catch Messiah away from the crowds. They would never have arrested Messiah at the temple during the daytime for fear of the crowds. So they had Judas point out a time when they could arrest him with nobody around to help. So he made no charges against Messiah. He made no charges against Messiah that we know of, no. Another question says, could you be put to death before the Sanhedrin for being a false witness? The answer is absolutely that's what God required. Somebody else says, so Judas Iscariot was the second false witness against Yeshua. No, there is no indication in scripture that he was a witness against Messiah. Um, 
if, if I had kept reading this story, they didn't even need the witness's testimony. They decided they would convict him on his own words, which is contrary to Jewish law. Well, the next one says, questions already answered. Okay, did you say that Yeshua had many false witnesses? Somebody asked the answer was yes. Many false witnesses because they couldn't find two to agree until finally at the end. Okay, we're in Proverbs chapter 6 starting in verse 19. Oh, we got to start in 16 because it begins, These six things the Lord hates. Let me ask this. Do you want to be on that list? No. Yes, seven are an abomination to him, literally to his soul. That is, watch out come judgment day. First, a proud look. Actually, it says proud eyes. A lying tongue. Hands that shed innocent blood. A heart that devises wicked plans. Feet that are swift and running to evil. Notice 17 and 18 are about different body parts. To watch out for our body parts. Verse 19 says, A false witness who speaks lies. And one who sows discord among brethren. My son, keep your father's commandments. And do not forsake the Torah of your mother. Bind them continually upon your heart. Tie them around your neck. Why? Verse 23. For the commandment is a lamp and the Torah a light. Why did you use a lamp or a light when you traveled at night? So you could stay on the right path. Avoid all the pitfalls and the dangers. There's something that has changed in Israel since my first visit in 1992. And that is they have built a new road from Jericho to Jerusalem. Did anybody ride the old road? It was about three inches wider than your bus. And all the way up the mountain, there's this huge deep ravine. Looks like it's miles deep. And you're, you're, you're creeping along right on the edge. As of course, they're telling you stories of how many buses have fallen off in the past. And you can see burnout wrecks down at the bottom. It was just to build up your faith. <laughs> Keep everybody praying. Okay. Proverbs chapter 12. Proverbs chapter 12, verse 17. Proverbs chapter 12, verse 17. He who speaks truth What's truth? Torah. Declares righteousness. But a false witness. Deceit. There is one who speaks like the piercings of a sword. Do you think that's the one declaring righteousness? Or the false witness? 
the false witness, of course. Go to Proverbs chapter 14, verse 5. Proverbs 14, verse 5. A faithful witness does not lie, but a false witness will utter lies. Proverbs 19. Verses 5 and 9. Proverbs 19, 5. A lot of those false witnesses before Messiah's trial and before Stephen's trial should have remembered this verse. Proverbs 19, 5. A false witness will not go unpunished. And he who speaks lies will not escape. What does the book of Revelation say? is true for all liars. They have their part in the lake of fire, which means if you have been a liar in the past, it's time to repent. Can you repent even of false witnessing? Of course. And now verse 9 of the same chapter. A false witness will not go unpunished, and he who speaks lies shall perish. Why did he tell us twice in those few verses that a false witness will not go unpunished? It's very important. It's very important. Is it something that people will tend to have forgotten by the time of Messiah? We're slow learners. We're slow learners. Okay. Proverbs chapter 25. Proverbs chapter 25, verse 18. A man who bears false witness against his neighbor is like a club, a sword, and a sharp arrow. Meaning what? Those are instruments to use to murder, right? They're instruments that kill. So a false witness's words can be every bit as much an instrument of murder as can a club, a sword, or a sharp arrow. So let's go to Matthew chapter 15. Matthew chapter 15. Verse 19. Messiah has just said, if I have some dirt on my hand when I eat my sandwich, and that dirt goes into the alimentary canal, does that defile me? No. What defiles me, that's in verse 19. For out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witnesses, blasphemies. These are the things which defile a man. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile a man. If you remember back in Matthew chapter 5, Messiah talks about 
Adultery is not just the act, but the evil thought of the heart that wants to do it. This is what he's talking about. Sin doesn't just happen. Sin begins in the heart with what word? I. I. I want. And I don't care. I want it. Which is going to lead us to the next commandment. But first we have a couple more verses. Matthew chapter 19. Verse 18. Last time I remember somebody saying, we've gone over this before tonight. And I remember saying, yeah, we'll go over it some more before we're done. And here we are. When Messiah summarizes some of the worst of the commandments, he includes false witnessing. Let's see in verse 18. He, Messiah, said to him, no, he the one who said, good teacher, what good things shall I do? Said to him, Messiah, which ones? Yeshua said, you shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Does Messiah put these all in a group of, if you're doing any of these, these are some of the worst of the commandments to break? Then he includes, honor your father and your mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Interesting, he includes, honor your father and your mother, after the, the conflict with the scribes and Pharisees in Matthew 15, where he says, you're teaching people to break this commandment. So here he's reminding people that it still exists and is still very important. And let's turn quickly to 1 Corinthians 15. Where Paul says, not only can you bear false witness against your neighbor, but you can bear false witness against the Lord himself. Let's start in verse 12 for context. Whoops, I've got a number one out there. All red. Let's go ahead and see what it is. Yeah, Susie, people may say that, but that doesn't make it true. You're right. 1 Corinthians 15, starting in verse 12 for context. Now, if Messiah is preached, that he's been raised from the dead. Who was preaching that Messiah was raised from the dead? All the disciples, including Paul. It says, how do some among you, you who claim to be believers in Messiah, how do you say that there is no resurrection from the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Messiah is not risen. And if Messiah is not risen, then our preaching is empty, it's void, it's useless, it's of no effect. And your faith is also empty. Yes, and we are found false witnesses of God because we have testified of God that he raised up Messiah whom he did not raise up if, in fact, the dead do not rise. 
For if the dead do not rise, then Messiah is not risen. And if Messiah is not risen, your faith is futile, you are still in your sins. Then also those who have fallen asleep in Messiah have perished. If in this life only we have hope in Messiah, we are of all men the most pitiable. But now Messiah is risen from the dead and has become the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. So you hear what he's saying. If they testify things about Messiah that are not true, then they are bearing false witness against the Lord. So how should our speech and language be always? Honest. Honest. You should be able to take my word to the bank. And I should be able to take yours the same way. All right. Back to Deuteronomy chapter 5. We have the very last of the only commandments there are, right? No. No, no, no. <laughs> Some people call them the ten suggestions, and I don't think God laughs when he hears that. But this is the tenth one that the people heard with their own ears. And then we'll see why they don't hear more after that with their own ears. Verse 21, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife. You shall not desire your neighbor's house. His field, his male servant, his female servant, his ox, his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. You see two words in this verse that mean really the same thing. And what are they? Covet and desire. Covet and desire. There are actually three different words used in the scripture that get translated as covet. Three different Hebrew words. And those same three Hebrew words get translated in ways other than covet. And that can make us a little bit confused. So I want you to make a note. The word that is translated covet in verse 21 is the Hebrew word chamad. C-H-A-M-A-D. I would say chamad. Is Hebrew word 2530. And it means to desire something. To desire something. It's not you drive down the street, you see a nice house and say, boy, that's a nice house. That's not coveting. But when you say, I'm going to get that house. Now you pass from want into desire. I have an internal emotional need to take that. That is that word. In Genesis 2.9, this same word, and we'll look at these scriptures in a few minutes. Now let's go look at it now. Genesis 2.9. Genesis 2.9. Of course, everybody goes, wait a minute. This is about... The Garden of Eden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Yes, it is. Genesis 2.9. And out of the ground the Lord God made every tree grow that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. That word pleasant there is the word covet, 
which means to desire. It's desirable. How many of you have ever passed through a nice apple orchard and said, yuck, who'd want to eat that? No, the apples are beautiful. They look wonderful. They look juicy and they make you want them. But that is the same word. Genesis 3, 6. Also the Garden of Eden in Sudent. So when the woman saw the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise, there's the same word. She took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her and ate. This is the kind of desire. God had said, thou shalt not eat it. And she's looking at it going, I just have to have it. I covet it. And let's go to Exodus 34, 24. What song keeps jumping into your mind when you read these words? By Rick Springfield, I wish that I had Jesse's girl. Yeah, that's coveting. It's not just sex, drugs, and rock and roll. It's in coveting. Exodus 34, 24. For I will cast out the nations before you and enlarge your borders. What? When you appear three times in the year before the Lord, you keep the feasts and festivals. Neither will any man covet your land when you go up to appear before the Lord your God three times in the year. Not only will they not take it, but they will not have that internal desire where they must have it. So God can control not just the actions, but the very attitudes of the heart. We find the same commandment, of course, in Exodus chapter 20, verse 17. And the next place I want to go is to Exodus chapter 18. Exodus chapter 18. Verse 21. Moreover, you shall select from all the people able men, such as fear God, men of truth, hating covetousness, and place such over them to be rulers of thousands, rulers of hundreds, rulers of fifties, and rulers of tens. You would expect that word covetousness to be chamad, and it's not. It is the word betsa, B-E-H-T-S-A, betsa, which is Hebrew word 1215. And it's a little different than covetousness. It means unjust gain. Unjust gain. So when somebody loans out money at a usurious interest rate, they receive unjust gain. But why did they do it? Because they wanted your money, money that was not theirs something they did not earn, something they did not 
deserve. So sometimes when you see covetousness, it will be chamad. Sometimes it will be betzah. And there is a third possibility. Let's turn back to Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 21. And we said that the word covet is parallel to the word desire. And that word desire, that second word in verse 21, is ava, A-V-A-H, ava, which is Hebrew word 183. So you have three different words that mean to desire something to the point you're going to take what is not yours. Ava means a strong desire. Mm -hmm. And is there a word, there obviously is, a word desire that's a good word? Probably, but I didn't look it up. More to be desired are they than gold. Right. God is saying there are things that you should desire. There are things you should desire, but not necessarily covet. Right. To desire something is to want it. That's not bad. To want what's not yours is bad. Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 25. This one got people in trouble. Deuteronomy 7, 25. You shall burn the carved images of their gods with fire. You shall not covet the silver or gold that is on them, nor take it for yourselves lest you be snared by it, for it is an abomination to the Lord your God. So the idol was a carved piece of wood with silver or gold put over it. And God knows that people are going to be thinking, how about I just take the silver and gold off and then burn the wood? And God says, oh no. When that silver or gold has been put on that idol, it has become what? An abomination to the Lord your God. Anytime you see the word abomination, it applies to something that in God's eyes is so bad that it's equivalent to idolatry. That would be a pretty hard command to follow right now. That would be a pretty hard command to follow right now. I mean, we, we all would like gold or silver. We all would like gold or silver, yes. And but without, if you're taking it off an idol, don't do it. Without knowing this command, we probably would go for it. Why do you think God put it in here in black and white? <laughs> don't do it. And as soon as they enter the land, what do people do? They capture idols and take them home for the gold and silver. And judgment breaks out. And Joshua has to go through the camp and say, okay, who did it? That just hails back to the the moment they got Moses out of sight, they made a gold calf. Yep, as soon as Moses was out of sight at Mount Sinai, they made a gold calf. And that was about 40 years earlier, I guess. And that was about 40 years earlier. You're right. So that's Deuteronomy 7.25. You shall not covet the silver or gold. Is it okay to want that silver or gold? No, because... It's not something that you can have. Oh, boy. That takes us. Okay. It takes us to Psalm 119. 
What is all of Psalm 119 about? About the Torah. And how important it is. What's the longest book in the Bible? Psalm 119. I wonder if there's a relationship. Huh. Psalm 119, verse 36. Incline my heart to your testimonies. What testimonies? The commandments. What are those two tablets called? The tablets of the testimony. And not to covetousness. So God commanded, thou shalt not covet. And in the psalm it says, please don't even let my heart lean that direction toward covetousness. Because what does covetousness lead to? I want that woman so badly, it leads to fornication and adultery. I want that gold or silver so bad, it leads to idolatry. I want my neighbor's land so bad, it leads to murder. Does the scripture say that money is the root of all evil? The love of money, the covetousness for it. You've got it. I want it. I'm wrong. Why does the scripture say be content however you are? Because God blessed you with it, so you should be thankful. God blessed you with it. You should be thankful. It's obviously enough. Why do you want what somebody else has? It's, not, it's a lack of faith. Is what it, is. it comes down to a lack of faith. Uh, God, God's not going to take care of me. I've got to do this myself. That's a lack of faith. God helps those who help themselves. God helps those who help themselves, but not to their neighbor's property. But God helps those who get caught. <laughs> yeah. Psalm 119, verse 36. And not to covetousness, it's actually not the word chamad. Which one is it? It is betzah, the unjust gain. Which is just a type of covetousness. I want what isn't mine. What's not due me. If somebody owes me something and I want them to repay it, that's not covetousness. It's when I want something I have no right to. Proverbs 28, 16. A ruler. Ah, let me give you a chance to get there. I'm getting ahead of you. A ruler who lacks understanding is a great oppressor. But he who hates covetousness will prolong his days. That word covetousness is again, betzah, unjust gain. There are things the king is entitled to. That's okay. But to strongly desire the things he's not entitled to, he may say, Bathsheba. Then he has gone astray. Isaiah chapter 57. Isaiah chapter 57. 
while you're turning there. What if I decide I want to cheat on my taxes so I can get a refund that I'm not entitled to? That's unjust gain, isn't it? I see some people that are looking down at their tables now. Okay. Of course the government was unjust in taking it. Of course the government was unjust in taking it. Do two wrongs make a right? Okay. Isaiah 57, verses 15 to 17. Isaiah 57, verses 15 to 17. Why do I start such things? I don't know. For thus says the high and lofty one, who is that? That's the Lord our God. Who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. Whose name is what? Holy, set apart, different. What does it say in Leviticus 11? Thou shalt be holy, for I am holy. It says, I dwell in the high and holy place with him. Oh, let's see who gets to dwell with the Lord. With him who has a contrite. What does contrite mean? Broken, sorrowful and humble spirit to revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite ones. A humble person will be obedient to the Lord. An arrogant person will break God's commandments because who is he to tell me what to do? The ones who are contrite or broken of heart over their sins, God says he's going to dwell with me. Verse 16 says, for I will not contend forever. What's that mean? It means judgment day is going to come one day. Nor will I always be angry. For the spirit would fail before me, which means people couldn't survive if God was angry forever. And the souls which I have made for the iniquity of his covetousness. I was angry and struck him. I hid and was angry. And he went on backsliding in the way of his heart, which means what? I brought judgment. He kept sinning anyway. Why? What, what does the covetousness of his heart have to do with sin? It doesn't matter if God's judging me for it. I'm going to do it anyway. Who is God to tell me I can't? I'll tell you who he is. He's the one who will judge our eternal destiny. Let's go to Jeremiah chapter 16. No, it's chapter 6. Jeremiah 6. I like Jeremiah 16, but that's not this time. Jeremiah 6 verse 13. Oh, my, my, my. Let's start in verse 9 to see that it's all about God pouring out his wrath. Thus says the Lord of hosts. What kind of prophecy? End times prophecy. They shall thoroughly glean as a vine the remnant of Israel. What is... Zechariah 13, what does it tell us? Two-thirds of Israel will perish. As a grape gatherer, put your hand back into the branches. To whom shall I speak and give warning that they may hear? 
What does that mean? To whom shall I speak and give warning they may hear? Who's listening? Who's listening? Right. Indeed, their ear is uncircumcised, which means they refuse to listen. And they cannot give heed. Behold, the word of the Lord is a reproach to them. That is, they hate to hear it. They don't want to hear it. It's like you're belittling them. They have no delight in it. Therefore, I am full of the fury of the Lord. I am weary of holding it in. I will pour it out on the children outside and on the assembly of young men together. For even the husband shall be taken with the wife, the aged with him who is full of days. And their houses shall be turned over to others, fields and wives together. For I will stretch out my hand against the inhabitants of the land, says the Lord, because. What's the because here? This is the reason God's so angry and pouring out his wrath. Because from the least of them, even to the greatest of them, everyone is given to covetousness. What kind of sin does that lead to? All kinds of sin. And from the prophet even to the priest, everyone deals falsely. They have also healed the hurt of my people slightly, saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. Were they ashamed when they committed abomination? No, they were not at all ashamed. Nor did they know how to blush. Does this describe today? Where people parade in the streets to declare their sin and their abominations before the Lord? Are they at all ashamed to admit their perverseness? No. It says, therefore they shall fall among those who fall. At the time I punish them, they shall be cast down, says the Lord. Oh, my, my, my. Verse 19, this is part of the same, shall we say, indictment. Hear, O earth, behold, I will certainly bring calamity on this people. The fruit of their thoughts, because they have not heeded my words, nor my Torah, but rejected it. It's an end times prophecy. Have the people of the world today rejected God's Torah? I have six red letters out here. Let's see. Okay, what proverb? What was the third word and number for covet? Well, I used Hamad, which was Hebrew 2530. Ava, A-V-A-H, which was Hebrew 183, and Betsa, B-E-H-T-S-A, which is Hebrew 1215. Okay, I think maybe that answers all the red questions. Back to Jeremiah, to chapter 8. What does it say in the Psalms? Lord, it is time to act, for they have considered your Torah as void. Whew. Jeremiah chapter 8, verse 10. Therefore, can we start with the therefore? No. So we'll back up to verse 8. 
How can you say we are wise? Who's saying we are wise? The people that are claiming to be wise, but they're ignorant. They've turned away from God, right? They're sinners about to get God's wrath poured out on them. How can you say we're wise and the law of the Lord is with us? Look, the false pen of the scribes certainly works falsehood. The wise men are ashamed. They're dismayed and taken. Behold, they have rejected the word of the Lord. So what wisdom do they have? So look at verse 8. They're saying we're wise. We're following the law of the Lord. But what does the Lord say? No, you're not. You've rejected the word of the Lord. Therefore, I will give their wives to others and their fields to those who will inherit them. Because from the least, even to the greatest, everyone is given to covetousness. From the prophet, even to the priest, everyone deals falsely. Do you think, excuse me for throwing this bone out, do you think that potentially... Do I think that potentially... These people are claiming to be following the oral law. These people are claiming to be following the oral law. Because they're saying we're following the law of the, the, law of the Lord, aren't they? They're saying that. They're saying that, but I don't think and they... And the people today, they claim that they're following the oral law. Yeah. And they say anything they want to because it's not written down. So. Yeah. I've told you. I have seen with my own eyes and her with my own ears. Theologians on YouTube teaching... That the law of God has been abolished, it's not for us, it's not to be followed. And then they turn to 1 John chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, and say we're following the commandments of God. They just said the law has been abolished, it's not to be done, but we're following the commandments of God. What are they following? Whatever they feel is right in their own eyes. Every man did what was right in his own eyes. So that's what's happening here in 8 and 9. Is the same thing happening today. They're doing what they want to do and saying God's just got to accept it. And I feel okay about it, so God must accept it. I've heard that more than once too. But to remind us, go back to Deuteronomy. Chapter 12, verse 32. Deuteronomy chapter 12, verse 32. Whatever I command you, be careful to observe it. You shall not add to it, nor take away from it. If you pick and choose and say, I will follow these commandments, but not those. Are you following God's commandments, or are you doing what you think is right in your own eyes? I'm sorry. Back to Jeremiah. Chapter 22. As we go over each of these commandments, be sure and look in your heart and say, am I doing that? If so, what should you do? Repent. Repent. Jeremiah 22 verse 17 says, Yet your eyes and your heart are for nothing but your covetousness, for shedding innocent blood and practicing oppression and violence. 
Why were they shedding innocent blood? Why were they sacrificing those children to Moloch and other pagan gods? Why were they doing that? Same as abortion today, because they're worshiping the idols and the sexual immorality is rampant and you get pregnant when you didn't mean to get pregnant, so you take the baby and sacrifice it to the idols. The children were an inconvenience. They were trying to have their cake and eat it too is essentially what it was. Yeah. Oh, man. Micah, chapter 2. Micha, who is like? We know Micah is about the coming of the Lord because it's the book that tells us that Messiah will be born in Bethlehem. And in chapter 4, it tells us about all the nations coming up to the kingdom with Messiah on the throne. But what else is in Micah chapter 2? Look at verse 2. They, who are they? Back up to verse 1. Woe to those who devise iniquity. What's the word devise mean? They plan it. They, they start out at night saying, what bad things can I do today? So woe to those who devise iniquity and work out evil on their beds. At morning light they practice it because it is in the power of their hand, meaning because they can. They covet fields and take them by violence. Also houses and seize them. They oppress a man in his house, a man in his inheritance. Why does God use the word inheritance here? Who gave them the land? God gave them the land. Who are you then to take it from them? Habakkuk chapter 2. Habakkuk gets quoted a lot in the New Testament because of the verse that says, the just shall live by faith. But it also says in chapter 2, verse 9, as soon as I find it, Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 9. Woe to him who covets evil gain for his house, that he may set his nest on high, that he may be delivered from the power of disaster. Huh. As it was in the past, it is now, right? In the days of old, you wanted your house to be as high as possible so that if there was a flood or something like that, it wouldn't touch your stuff. Where do the rich and powerful tend to live today? But in the penthouses. Just think of all those who've been caught up in the Ponzi schemes, trying to make themselves rich by stealing from the poor. And who do they target most? The widows. Just ask a widow how many times they get letters enticing them to part with their resources. Luke 12. 
Whenever I start pausing like that, it means I'm thinking, should I go there or shouldn't I go there? This time I'm not going to. So go to Luke 12, verse 15. Luke 12, chapter 15. And he said to them, Take heed and beware of covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of the things he possesses. I'm sure you've heard the old expression, he who dies with the most toys wins. Yeah, it's old, it's just not true. What Messiah is saying here in his own words is, we don't have to have a lot of material possessions to be wealthy. If your heart is set in heaven, you have enough. What if your heart is fixed on the things on earth? What I have, I want more, more, more. Then you have no heavenly good? Yep, that's true. But you also got to wonder, is that the direction you're headed anyway? Hmm. Why did Ananias and Sapphira in the book of Acts come and lie to the apostles about how much they sold their land for? It was covetousness. Could they have sold the land and kept all the proceeds? Sure. Or they could have been honest about what they sold it for. But they wanted to be accepted for generosity while they were stingy. So they wanted to be honored for their generosity while still keeping their pockets full. Yeah, just like what Luke said. Amazing why we went there, huh? Go to Acts chapter 20. Acts chapter 20. You got to love the book of Acts. Most people think Paul wrote it. He didn't. Acts chapter 20, verses 32 to 34. Acts chapter 20, verses 32 to 34. So now, brethren, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace. What's that mean? It means go study the Bible, right? Go study the Bible which is able to build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. What is sanctified? Set apart, made holy. What inheritance are they looking for? But eternal life in the new Jerusalem. Tell me about the new Jerusalem where the streets are paved with what? Gold. The foundations are what? All kinds of precious stones. The gates are made of pearl. How many pearls does it take to make a gate? One. Can you imagine the size of that pearl and the oyster that it came from? God didn't need an oyster to build it. But can you imagine the wealth and the beauty so what are we going to do? Are we going to go dig up the street and put it in our pockets? No, of course not. Acts chapter 20, verses 32 to 34. 
So now, brethren, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I have coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. Yes, you yourselves know that these hands have provided for my necessities and for those who were with me. So when Paul went from church to church, did he bring his offering basket? Answers no. He said, I didn't covet your silver or gold or apparel. He worked for what he had. Now, don't, what did he do? He was a tent maker. Yeah. He made tallits. That's what he did. Why is a tallit referred to in the New Testament Greek as a tent? Because <laughs> they wouldn't want you to know that the apostles teaching people to wear the tallit. Because what's at the corners of the tallit? The tzitzit, reminding us of the commandments. Where in the Bible does God command us to wear the tzitzit? It's in Numbers chapter 15. Right after it says what? One law and one custom. And then there's a rebellion. <laughs> and then there's a rebellion. Okay. Fair enough. Go to Romans chapter 1. In Romans chapter 1, Paul's listing all kinds of bad things to avoid at all costs. Romans 1.29. As a judgment for refusing to follow God, to renouncing God, to not wanting anything to do with him. It says in verse 28 that God gave them over to a debased mind. Verse 29 explains what that means. Being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness covetousness, maliciousness, etc. These are things which are a judgment from God. Because when you participate in them and your heart follows after them, desiring them, then you're heading toward your judgment. Romans chapter 7, verse 7. Now, Romans chapter 7 is the one that says, therefore the law is holy and the commandment holy and just and good. But that's not why we're here. Paul says in chapter 7, verse 7, what shall we say then? Is the law sin? What's the answer? Certainly not. That takes me back to a Messiah conference many years ago. <coughs> When one of the speakers got up and said, if a Gentile keeps the Sabbath, that's sin. <coughs> he needs to go back and read Romans 7, 7. Is the law sin? Certainly not. Isaiah 56 says a Gentile keeping Sabbath is going to come into the kingdom. Right. So that is in agreement with Romans 7, 7, isn't it? Yep. He says, on the contrary, I would not have known sin except through the law, for I would not have known covetousness unless the law has said you shall not covet. How would you know that it was sinful to covet something 
if God didn't say, you shall not covet. God wouldn't be just if he judged us for it and hadn't told us. So what does the book of Acts say? Sin is not imputed where there is no law. And would we really want to do it if God hadn't told us we couldn't? That's where Paul talks about when, when sin, when the law comes, sin just really tries to overwhelm me. So what do you do when the heart starts to want things that are wrong? The scripture says what? Rebuke the devil and he shall flee from you. What if though we just want to dabble just a little in the sin? When your friends have got into your life. A little leaven what? Leaven's the whole loaf. Yeah, avoid bad company. And that's, that's just the rock band. Romans 13, verse 9. It's not just enough to resist the devil. You must draw near to God. It's kind of two sides of the same coin, isn't it? And how you draw near to God. And to draw near to God, you have to follow his ways. Deuteronomy 8, 11, right? If you will not keep God's commandments, you've forgotten him in his words. Can you imagine the discussions that are going to take place on Judgment Day when people stand up there and say, hey, I'm wholly righteous, and the Lord says, no, you're not? There's going to be a lot of really destroyed people who are going to stand there honestly thinking that I was a good person. I deserve to be here. Romans 13, verse 9. For the commandments, you shall not commit murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, you shall not covet. And if there's any other commandment, which means there are other commandments, they're all summed up in this saying, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. How can you want to take that which your neighbor has if you truly love them? Love in Hebrew is an action verb. It's how you treat your neighbor. You don't want to take what your neighbor has. You want to be happy for your neighbor for what they have, what God has allowed them to accumulate in this world, not to want to take it. So let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 10 to 11. In the first part of chapter 5, Paul rebukes the congregation because there's a man in the congregation having sex with his father's wife and everybody approves of it. And Paul says, you, you can't. You can't allow it to go on. But in verse 9 he says, I wrote to you my epistle not to keep company with sexually immoral people, yet I did not mean with the sexually immoral people of this world or with the covetous or extortioners or idolaters, since you would need to go out of the world. So does Paul say we should make these our best friends and learn from them? No, he says we need to be witnessing to them. We need to be teaching them the word of God. 
But should these people be members of the church? He's saying no. So verse 11, but now I've written to you not to keep company with anyone named a brother, anyone who claims to be saved, who is sexually immoral or covetous or an idolater or a viler or a drunkard or extortioner, not even to eat with such a person. So what is Paul saying? That if somebody who claims to be a believer in Messiah is walking in open sin, should we be treating them as if they are saved? Should we be sitting down sharing meals with them? To share a meal was to show acceptance, to show that you're okay with what they're doing. And it should not be okay. 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 and 10. How many lectures is Paul giving to the Corinthians in this book? The answer is none. It's a written letter. So it's a letter. So chapter 6 is not a different speech that comes three years later. It's all written at the same time. It's all in the same subject, which ultimately is about Passover. But in verse 9, he says, Do you not know that the unrighteous, what's another term for unrighteous? The lawless will not inherit the kingdom of God. He's talking to people who call themselves believers. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. So if that one of those words describes you, what should you do? Repent. That's verse 11. And such were some of you. Were, past tense. But you were washed. But you were sanctified. But you were justified. In the name of the Lord Yeshua and by the Spirit of our God. So how should we look at a flaming homosexual pastor in a church? What's that? It's a misnomer. Okay. That answers the question. Go to Ephesians chapter 5. Yes, there is no such thing as a flaming homosexual pastor. As much as Hollywood wants to persuade us otherwise. Ephesians 5, verses 3 to 5. Ephesians 5, verses 3 to 5. Paul told us in verse 1 to be imitators of God. In verse 3 he says, But fornication and all uncleanness. So what types of uncleanness are okay? None. Or covetousness. Yeah, it's a different... Yeah. Or covetous. Let it not even be named among you as is fitting for saints. Neither filthiness, nor foolish talking, nor coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. 
For this you know, that no fornicator, unclean person, nor covetous man who is an idolater has any inheritance in the kingdom of Messiah and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. Why would he say that? Are there false teachers who will try and persuade us that these are okay? Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore do not be partakers with them. That doesn't seem to me like it beats around the bush. It just comes right to the point. Notice it doesn't say the wrath of God is poured out upon the sons of God. You're right. Upon the sons of disobedience. How can you tell the son of God from the son of disobedience? Read that list. First John 3.10 Yeah. If you're walking in lawlessness... Do not be deceived. That does not describe the child of God. Colossians 3.5 Colossians 3.5 In verse 2, Paul says, Set your mind on things above, not on things of the earth. And in verse 5, he expounds, Therefore, put to death your members which are on the earth. That doesn't mean commit suicide. Just keep listening. Fornication, that we put to death. Uncleanness, put to death. Passion, which means that's a type of covetousness. Evil passion. Evil desire and covetousness. Passion, evil desire, and covetousness are three words describing the same types of conduct, which is why we have chameid, ava, and betsa in the Old Testament. And it says, which is idolatry? Covetousness is idolatry. To want something that badly. It says, because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon whom? Again, the sons of disobedience. Why does Paul say this to church after church after church? Because he wants to make sure they realize he was not just talking to a specific small group of people, but to all of the congregation of God. 1 Timothy 3. Verse 3. We'll start in verse 1 for context. Because it's about somebody who wants to be a bishop. It says, this is a faithful saying. If a man desires the position of a bishop, he desires a good work. A bishop then must be blameless. What's that mean, blameless? Not given to sin, right? Not walking in lawlessness. The husband of one wife. Temperate. Sober-minded, of good behavior, hospitable, able to teach, not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not covetous. One who rules his own house well, 
having his children in submission with all reverence. For if a man does not know how to rule his own house, how will he take care of the church of God? And it goes on. But because the time we will go on to Hebrews chapter 13. Paul had a lot to say about covetousness. The love of money, that's covetousness. Hebrews 13, 5. Let your conduct be without covetousness. Be content with such things as you have. For himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Which means if you are saved by faith and by the true and living God, you have enough. God will provide what you need. James chapter 4. James chapter 4. Verse 2. You lust and do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight in war, yet you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask amiss that you may spend it on your pleasures. So the book of James says, don't be asking God for a million dollars because you want to be rich. The old song, Lord, give me a Mercedes Benz, I got to make amends, etc. That's just wrong. If you have a true need, ask God, pray to God, he will provide it. But he will not provide every want and every desire. Some people take the words in John Ask what you will and you'll receive it to mean I can just ask for any old thing. I want the winning lottery ticket this week. How many of you think I'm going to get it? I don't think so. Would it do me? What's that? I'm not going to buy one. Would it do me any good if I won a million dollars? Would that make me more righteous before God? Would I use it for good and godly things? Or would I use it for things of which God would not approve. And you'd have to pay more taxes. Would I be tempted to cheat on my taxes to try and hide it? There's that scripture that says, Lord, don't make me poor so I won't steal, but don't give me too much that I won't want. Help me to be content with what I have. Yep, that's exactly right. Help me to be content with what I have. All right, we understand what he's talking about here. When he says you lust and do not have, you murder and covet and cannot obtain, trying to obtain riches through sinful and unlawful means. If you're able to attain the wealth, it's only in this world and it's only for a moment until it's gone. But what have you done to your eternity future? You really obtained what? Nothing. You've lost everything. Second Peter chapter 2. 
Second Peter chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. Second Peter chapter 2, verses 1 to 3. Oops, I have a red number on here. Excuse me. Let me see what it is. Correct, Cassandra. We're not to treat them as though they are saved and brothers in the Lord. Okay. Second Peter chapter 2, verses 1 to 3. But there were also false prophets among the people. What kind of false prophets were among Israel? If you think back to the time of the Babylonian captivity, what were the prophets in Jerusalem telling the people? The city won't fall. The city won't fall. God won't judge us. We're God's people. We're descended from Abraham. We're going to be okay. Okay, the prophets of God are saying flee, but no, don't do that. You know better. You need to have more faith. That's like the theologians of today that are saying, don't repent. That shows you don't have enough faith to think that God will save you despite your sin. That's a that's a yep, that's what they're saying. It says, even as there will be false teachers among you. Why would Peter tell the people to be aware of false teachers? They lead you away from God. In Matthew chapter 7, Messiah says, most people seeking heaven are on the broad road on the way to perdition because they're following the false teachers. So Peter begins in no uncertain terms saying, just as there were false prophets to Israel, there will be false teachers in the church who will secretly bring in destructive heresies even denying the Lord who bought them. How could somebody claim to be a true preacher and teach things that deny the Lord who bought them? Bring on themselves swift destruction. What kind of doctrines being taught today would fall under this category of denying the Lord? All roads lead to, to salvation. All roads lead to salvation. That's right. We're all just... Different spokes on a wheel leading to God. Is that true? No. The whole ecumenical movement. Chrislam is growing like wildfire today. But even more mainstream. What about the doctrine of transubstantiation? That Messiah gave human flesh and human blood to his disciples before he was crucified. If he did that, he died a sinner. What does a sinner's death accomplish? Nothing. Yes, ma'am? What's Chrislam? is the idea that the Islamic faith and Christianity are just two sides of a coin. They work together. And that we can join them into one religion that will be more worshipful of God and more approved by God. That's why the Pope and the great imams keep meeting, trying to merge the two religions together. Okay, to verse 2. And many will follow their destructive ways, because of whom the way of truth will be blasphemed. The way of truth. What is truth? 
Torah. So it tells you the false teachers are going to teach people not to follow Torah, not to follow God's commandments. You're trying to earn your salvation by works. That is not true. But what's their motivation? It's not that they hate people. It's what? Verse 3. By covetousness, they will exploit you with deceptive words. What do they want from people? Money. Money. Gee, my jet's three years old. I can't ride on a three-year-old jet. Come on, people. Same chapter, 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 12 to 17. But these, like natural brute beasts, talking about the false teachers, made to be caught and destroyed, speak evil of the things they do not understand. They don't understand the truth and will utterly perish in their own corruption. Do all the false teachers know they're false teachers? Absolutely not. They just do not understand the truth. And will receive the wages of unrighteousness as those who count it pleasure to carouse in the daytime. Their spots and blemishes, meaning what? What are we supposed to be? Supposed to be tamim, spotless. Carousing in their own deceptions while they feast with you, having eyes full of adultery, and that cannot cease from sin, enticing unstable souls. They have a heart trained in covetous practices and are accursed children. They have forsaken the right way and gone astray, following the way of Balaam, the son of Baor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness. Does the book of Revelation mention Balaam the son of Baor? But not in a good way. And then verses 18 to 22. For when they speak great swelling words of emptiness, they allure through the lusts of the flesh, through lewdness, the ones who have actually escaped from those who live in error. While they promise them liberty, they themselves are slaves of corruption. For by whom a person is overcome, by him also he's brought into bondage. For if after they have escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and the Savior, Yeshua and Messiah, they are again entangled in them. In what? In the sins of the world. And overcome, the latter end is worse for them than the beginning. For it would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn from the holy commandment delivered to them. But as happened to them according to the true proverb, a dog returns to his own vomit and a sow having washed to her wallowing in the mire. Does that sound in the slightest like they've lost a few of the rewards when they get to heaven? Sounds like they lost the way, period. Lost them all. Lost entirely. The latter end is worse for them than the beginning. For it would have. What's that? Not teachable. Right. Not teachable. For it would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it, to turn from the holy commandment delivered to them. To turn from the holy commandment means what? The holy commandment supplied to them. But what are the false teachers telling them? That they don't. That they don't. Oh, my time has expired.
We will pick up next week, Lord willing, in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 5, verse 22. <coughs> Having finished the ten, we're going to see why there are only ten listed in the Ten Commandments. Is that all the commandments there are? The answer is no, and we will find out why when we look at Deuteronomy, chapter 5, verse 22.